Corey, what does hark mean, at least in biblical speak? Well, it means, hello, pay attention. <laughs> um, something, something really cool is about to happen here. You don't want to miss it in the vernacular. When we sing this opening line, we kind of lump it together. Hark, the herald angels sing. But it's actually written as hark, exclamation point, the herald angels sing. So it's meant to say, listen up. It's an announcement. When I think of hark, the herald angels sing, I think of joy. It always reminds me of the end of my favorite Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Merry Christmas, you wonderful and building alone. Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter. And then the little girl plays Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I played that on piano at a, like a Christmas recital. You know, I was in seventh or eighth grade, so that's that's where my mind immediately goes. I always associate it with like angels singing and massive choirs and, and lots of energy. Welcome to Hark, a podcast about the meaning and the making of our favorite Christmas carols. I'm your host, Maggie Van Dorn. Over the four weeks of Advent, we'll be unwrapping one song at a time. We'll look at the musical development of these jingles, along with the religious messages baked into their lyrics. And this episode is basically the title track of the podcast. It's all about Hark, the Herald Angels Sing, an absolute classic that did not, in fact, begin as a Christmas song at all. First of all, the text wasn't even, I don't think he was aware of it, but he never intended it to be a Christmas song or even a sacred piece. It's a secular chorale. This is Colin Britt, a New Jersey-based conductor, choir director, teacher, and composer. The original tune by Mendelssohn is from his Festgesang, which is a cantata celebrating Gutenberg and the 400th anniversary of the invention of the printing press. And the translation goes something along the lines of, Fatherland in your area, the golden day dawned, Gutenberg, the German man, lit the torch. So it's this notion of Gutenberg bringing light to the people. Through the printing press. Through the printing press, that's right. And so it's this very celebratory tune and the <laughs> I'll play a little bit of I found the music for it it goes Vaterland in deinen Gauen bracht der Gold Tag einst an and then it even has the Gutenberg das Deutsch you know it's very exuberant and patriotic <laughs> this is one of the most marvelous aspects of carol development and though we've talked about it in previous episodes it bears repeating the text and the tune of a song often have a life of their own, one completely independent of the other, sometimes for several centuries before they get paired up. The tune to Hark the Herald Angels Sing was composed by Felix Mendelssohn in 1840. The text was penned a century earlier, in 1739. So, Hark the Herald Angels Sing was originally written as a hymn text by Charles Wesley. That last name, Wesley, might sound familiar. Charles Wesley was a famous and prolific hymn writer, with about 9,000 compositions to his name. His fame is only eclipsed by that of his younger brother, John Wesley, one of the founders of the Methodist Church. It's my understanding that in 1739, when he wrote it, he intended it to be sung to Christ the Lord is Risen Today, which actually would make it sound something like, Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king, which is a little off-putting since we're used to a very different tune. Okay, so how does a stately hymn get matched with a tavern tune? Well, 
It turns out that Hark the Herald Angels Sing was first presented as a poem, not a hymn. The poem was titled A Hymn for Christmas Day, and Charles Wesley took inspiration from the sound of church bells he heard ringing down London streets on his way to Mass one Christmas day. The poem became a hymn, but not without a few editorial tweaks. Take the first line we sing today, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Instead of angels, Wesley had written, Hark how all the welkin ring. Any guesses as to what welkin might be? It's not a winged creature, but it does refer to the third heavenly tier where angels were believed to soar. Apparently, an ancient cosmology pictured all of reality existing on three planes. The highest heavenly sphere was the welkin. And this is where God and the angels live. The lowest plane is for us mortals. And the space between, that's where angels descend to intervene as divine messengers. But it was a friend of Wesley named George Whitefield who intervened on Hark the Herald. He said that the term Welkin was too esoteric, even for 18th century folk, and that no one would understand it. Whitefield changed the first line to Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And he cut two of the more theologically dense verses. He then published it for the first time in his 1753 Hymns for Social Worship. Still, editors kept altering Wesley's words. A preacher by the name of Martin Madden gave us one of the hymn's most splendid lines. The original said, Universal nature say, Christ the Lord is born today. Madden changed that to, With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. But it appears that Charles's brother, John Wesley, was not happy with the poetic license that some were taking. In the preface to their 1780 hymns collection, he wrote, Many gentlemen have done my brother and me, though without naming us, the honor to reprint many of our hymns. Now, they are perfectly welcome so to do, provided they print them just as they are. We may no longer be held responsible either for the nonsense or for the doggerel of other men. For those of us who do not know what doggerel means, it's comic verse. But in the end, these adaptations only contributed to the song's longevity. Hark the Herald Angels Sing was one of only two Christmas carols included in a 1782 Book of Psalms for Worship in the Anglican Church. This would give the hymn greater liturgical status than ever before, and bring it to the attention of churchgoers and composers alike. One century later, it was paired with Mendelssohn's festival song. Mendelssohn was a German composer. He was actually raised Jewish and then converted later in life and became a very devout Lutheran. And his music largely reflects that conversion that he had. Of course, Mendelssohn had no idea his cantata would be played to the words of Wesley's hymn. William Heyman Cummings is the person we have to thank for combining the text by Charles Wesley with the familiar tune by Mendelssohn, and he published the two together in 1855, and he also did the harmonization that we're familiar with for Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Um, and that's the first time that we know of that the text and the tune for that carol coexisted. 
By the way, this is after Mendelssohn has died. So Mendelssohn never heard Hark the Herald Angels Sing as we know it. Wow. And it wasn't until 1855 that that combination of the text and the tune was published. And it's probably just as well. Mendelssohn was looking for a popular audience for his festival tune. And so in a letter to his publisher, Mendelssohn wrote, I'm sure that piece will be liked very much by the singers and the hearers, but it will never do to sacred words. So there you have it. Had it been left to the wishes of the Wesley brothers or to Felix Mendelssohn, we might never have the iconic hark we sing today. But the music doesn't end there. Of course, there are many ways to make this piece sing. So Colin, how is this song often performed? So in churches, it's commonly performed with a harmonization either by the original publication, which was done by Cummings. It's also frequently done by, uh, in a harmonization by David Wilcox, who published this in his Carols for Choirs in 1961. And it's become, I think, ubiquitous in the English-speaking church music world. In 1957, Sir David Wilcox was appointed director of music at the world-acclaimed choir of King's College based at the University of Cambridge in England. So the choir at King's College is one of the best boy choirs in the world, and arguably one of the best choirs in general. It's a choir school and performing organization, and so they train young boys to sing, you know, usually when they're high sopranos, and typically those boys stay at the school and graduate as their voices drop. And so it's a four-part SATB choir, where the basses and tenors probably grew up singing soprano and then alto at one point. So it's this multi-generational organization. And the singing is famously pure and pristine and very expressive. And while the choir is renowned for its excellence year-round, there's one annual event that is the envy of choristers worldwide. The service of lessons and carols at King's College has been this beloved tradition. A tradition that dates to 1918. But the first broadcast of the service on the BBC was in 1928. It was on BBC Radio. And then in 1954, they began streaming it on television as well. And it's now, for, for many of my friends and me, a tradition every Christmas Eve to make sure we wake up and turn on the radio uh, right around 11 o'clock so that we can hear it streamed across the Atlantic. But it's this really solemn, beautiful, holy experience. It's candlelit, and there's this sense of awe and majesty around the whole affair. From the first note, which is sung by a boy soprano, uh, once in Royal David City, until the final organ postlude note has faded away. But Hark the Herald is traditionally sung at that service. And for many, many years, um, the David Wilcox arrangement is the one that I think is, is most commonly associated. There are a couple of other arrangements that have also been done, which are really impressive, but a lot of them that you feel like you're listening to a slight variation on David Wilcox's version. One of the most distinctive elements of the Wilcox arrangement of Hark is its harmonization. The tune by itself could be given a number of different chords. It happens that the one that we're familiar with is very much identified with that tune. And so a lot of these carols have pretty much become identified with the harmonization that has appeared in most hymnals. And 
just what makes Wilcox's harmonization so special. So in the Wilcox arrangement of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we begin with the first two verses set in a traditional harmony that is recognizable, I think, to most listeners. And then in the third verse, that's where we introduce both this very exciting new harmonization that brings in a lot of chromatic notes. A chromatic note is a note that's half a step above the note before it. So from a B to a C. Or from a C to a C sharp. When you add some notes like this, it tends to add some color to a sound, which is why they're called chromatic. And he also adds this soaring soprano descant that lifts the whole spirit of the text even higher, both literally and figuratively. A descant is a second melody that hovers above the main melody. And it's this very, very well-known descant that um, I think sopranos who get to sing it love singing it every year. It takes them all the way to a high A, which is probably one of the highest pitches that you might have in a Christmas service. So a lot of the Christmas carols, including Hark, have a lot of repetition in them, and that's probably because we want people to be able to sing them. We want them to be memorable and catchy enough. What's going on here in Hark that makes it so? Right. So as was the case with a lot of really well-known congregational hymns, many of these carols make use of repetition of sequence and of sort of antecedent and consequent, which is the idea of if this, then that. And so there's a logic that is embedded in the melodies of these tunes that helps the congregation remember them. This goes back to long before congregations had printed hymnals, and they might only have the lyrics, and so they would have to learn a lot of it by ear. Can you give us an example of the if this, then that? Sure. So in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, um, an example of antecedent and consequent is this, this opening figure. That's the question. And then the answer is... And then the second phrase begins exactly the same. So it's your antecedent. But then we have a different answer. And so there's a lot of these phrases that sort of have this rising figure and then descending figure. And the descending suggests that there's an answer, like you're ending on a down note. Yes, exactly right. And and the harmony supports that too. The first phrase moves from what's called the tonic or the root chord of the key. to the five. So we've gone from home to away. And then we have to get back home again. And now we're back home. And there's this, mm. there's a satisfaction that... There's a resolution that you find there. Yeah, there's a resolution and a satisfaction that you get as a singer or a listener. Mm. But then the second phrase, we have to move away and sort of get into a different area. So this is, again, where the idea of antecedent and consequent applies. But this time, it's more of a departure and moving away from where we've been because we don't want the hymn to end too early. So we have this. That's our first introduction of chromatic notes. It's a borrowed chord. It's a secondary dominant. And then we've now landed firmly in the dominant in the five key, which is 
the away key, if you will. Mm. And that sets us up for this repetition of joyful all ye nations rise. And this is just complete repetition. It's exactly the same. Yeah. Now that figure sets us up for this, this lift to with angelicals proclaim. And then that figure is also a repetition because then we have Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which ends down. It ends finally back home. And so all of the chromatic notes and antecedents and consequence and soaring harmonies, they're meant to wake us up with a bit of the unexpected. Uh, you have to sit up a little taller when you sing it. It's it's kind of impossible mm-hmm. to slouch when you sing this carol. In short, Hark really does force us to pay attention. And in the end, it even holds our attention. That final verse brings in these really, really beautiful goosebump-inducing harmonies on the final refrain. And you hear that text in a different way than you've heard it for the rest of the song. That's one of those moments that I look forward to every year. We all look forward to singing Hark. However, that doesn't make it an easy carol to sing. And here's why. It does have a wide range between the lowest note of the tune and the highest note. It's a little over an octave. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most congregational hymns try to live within about an octave. So we're kind of pushing against that. And why do you suppose that this would have been composed in a way that is challenging for most people to reach or sustain? Well, I think that part of the challenge is that it wasn't originally written for this text and that it's being borrowed from a cantata that would have been sung by a choir. And so it wasn't originally intended to be sung by a congregation. And so it sort of goes back to its roots as a secular occasional piece rather than a sacred Christmas carol. Right. So when I'm struggling in mass to sing this, it's really not my fault. (laughs) It was intended for a choir. Exactly right. (laughs) I'm doing my best. Some of my fondest associations with this song uh, or hymn probably go to my mother. My mother sang in the church choir for as long as I could remember. Christmas carols were particular favorites of hers. So when I hear any, uh, but particularly this one, I think of my mother who had a beautiful soprano voice. Uh, My name is Laurie Brink. I'm a Dominican sister of Cincinnati and a professor of New Testament studies at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, Illinois. So on a really basic level, what would you say that this song is about? Well, I think it's picking up some of the themes from the Gospel of Luke, in which the evangelist talks about the birth of the baby Jesus, and to try to emphasize how absolutely amazing this event is. Um, He has these the story of of an angel kind of calling the attention to local shepherds, like 
hey guys, look at this. This is amazing. You want to go check this out. I wanted to talk to Lori about angels because they're everywhere. Not only the singing subjects in this song, but throughout the Christmas season. Angels on trees, in nativity scenes and pageants. And of course, the scriptures are riddled with them, proclaiming the news of Jesus' birth. Angels are divine messengers. In fact, that's what the word angelos in Greek means. Simply means messenger. And they appear most in the Gospels of Luke and Matthew. Luke's angels have a little more work to do than the ones in Matthew. There's the angel Gabriel in the Annunciation, and then there's an angel that speaks to the shepherds and then is joined by this choir of the heavenly host. So kind of think of it as an angel soloist and a really big group of backup singers. Are the heavenly hosts also angels? Yes, host simply means like army. So you're thinking an army of heavenly beings are all rejoicing over this moment. Okay, so celestial beings of some sort. There you go. With good voices. Yeah, I, I think that comes with the job. Um, <laughs> Scott, right? Yeah, yeah, I hope <laughs> I've so. never heard an angel with a bad voice. Yeah. This song is just chock full of like a triumphant gladness, a joy that, that just seems baked in. Like, I don't know if I've heard a sad version or a, mm -hmm. a somber version of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So is this like classic angel pomp? Like, are angels always arriving with such celebration or such exultant news? Uh, no, uh, not necessarily. Sometimes angels um, bring other news. Like, I don't know that Mary minding her own business at the Annunciation was particularly thrilled with the news that she was going to carry God's son. I believe Mary's exact words were, how can this be? I don't know that what angels come to share with us is necessarily always excitedly received. Think of the angels after the resurrection of Jesus in the empty tomb. The women in, according to Mark's gospel, encounter this angel, this person that tells them the tomb is empty, and they run away in fear. And the text says they told no one. So I don't know that there's always the heavenly choir of joy and enthusiasm with all angels. This is a particular a particular moment to celebrate sure. the birth of Jesus. Well, when I think about all of the scriptural moments when angels arrive to deliver their message, usually the first thing they say is, be not afraid. Right. Or something that's, like that, right? Yeah, that that's kind of like their calling card. So uh -huh. in Luke's gospel, they're normally dressed very nicely in all white clothes. So if you encounter a being in all white clothes that says, don't be afraid, that's probably an angel, and you should be afraid. <laughs> right. And I mean, part of that could be just awestruck, right? Or just the, right. the fear of the majesty, the transcendent nature of, of angels and what they represent. Absolutely. They're, they're mediators between God and us. So an encounter with one is as close as we're going to get to the divine world, this side of the divine world. So yeah, awe is a good way to describe it. So after the first verse introduces the song, the angels proclaiming the birth of Jesus, the second verse begins, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord.
I asked Lori what she makes of this. Well, if we, if we look at the first part of that verse, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, we really get an echo of Paul's letter to the Philippians about how God has highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name above every other name so that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you have this sense of the absolute majesty that is Jesus as God's Son. And that's important. Why? Well, because God becoming incarnate is absolutely foundational to our faith, and it hasn't happened before. So it's this amazing, again, the way angels are intermediaries, Jesus is not an intermediary. Jesus is flesh. Jesus is one we could encounter without an intermediary. So mm. that's that's part of the amazing aspect of the incarnation. It's God with us. Okay. So in that same verse, we say, Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, right? So echoing again the the incarnation, the flesh that Jesus takes on. Jesus our Emmanuel, which is a lovely little rhyme there. Yeah. So where does this word Emmanuel come from? The word Emmanuel comes from originally from Isaiah. So the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14, talks about this young woman having a child, and that child shall be called Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Matthew uses that line in his story to kind of open up his narrative about the gospel of Jesus. What's really interesting is at the end of Matthew's gospel, in chapter 28, we have Jesus on the mountain kind of sending the disciples forth, and he says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, which is echoing this God with us, that God is Jesus who remains with us. So pretty brilliant on Matthew's part, I think. Yeah, to carry that all the way through. If I could just digress for a minute, the evangelists are doing what our hymnist has done. They're trying to figure out how do we understand the story of Jesus? How do we explain that? And so they have recourse to their only scripture, which is what we call the Old Testament. So they look at their experience of Jesus and the information they have about him, and they see that he is fulfilling what had been written previously. The same way our hymnist is looking at scripture and bringing it forward into the hymn, that he's kind of doing a mashup of these various verses. Yeah, I like that a mashup or a remix of, of yeah, scripture. Exactly. It also strikes me that we have so many different words or names, titles, appellations for Jesus. You know, we have Prince of Peace, uh, Son of Righteousness here, Emmanuel. Why do you suppose that scripture offers us? So many different names for Jesus. I think it's because, I mean, we have all these various names to describe Jesus because people have different experiences of Jesus. And as they are retelling their experience, they're trying to find words for what is often an indescribable encounter. I think it goes back to the effect, the Jesus effect. What is it that Jesus has come to do. This isn't just um, a nice story about a little baby. This is about the whole effect that Jesus's life, death, and resurrection will have on the world, and certainly on people of faith. So it's all this idea of belief in Jesus is efficacious. We're not simply 
believing because it's a fun thing to do. We're believing because it touches us deeply. Um, it is about eternal life. And that is something to sing about. So you, like everyone else, has early childhood recollections. But unlike most others, you are a scripture scholar. So you are totally steeped in this world of the Bible and its themes. So when you sing Hark, are you thinking of your early childhood or what, what is going through your mind? Um, first, I'm a terrible singer. <laughs> so I'm thinking, I hope nobody hears me. That's what's going through my mind. Um, what goes through my mind is not the exegesis of the song. Hmm. I mean, and that's the beauty of music. Hmm. You lose yourself in it. You get outside your brain and you let your heart rejoice. And I think that that's one of the reasons we like these songs, because we, we don't think about it. Yeah. We enjoy it. In the end, carols are all about the singing, aren't they? We sing for how it feels and for what they do within us. There's even the old adage, which is widely attributed to St. Augustine, that singing is praying twice. So even if all the biblical references, descants, and chromatic notes fly right over your head, that's okay. Remember, even the folks singing Wesley's original lines wouldn't have known the first thing about the Welkins ring. But just in case you find yourself in a Christmas carol trivia tournament, here are the main lessons we've derived from Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's a big heavenly celebration for the birth of Jesus, or the Incarnation, which is absolutely central to the whole Christian story. The lyrics were first written down as a poem by Charles Wesley in 1739. A century later, Mendelssohn wrote a cantata celebrating the 400-year anniversary of the Gutenberg printing press that was hitched to Wesley's hymn by William Heyman Cummings. Neither Wesley nor Mendelssohn had any idea that their work would be paired together. And this brings me to something that Elizabeth Gilbert wrote about the creative process that I think sounds an awful lot like the Annunciation. In an article for the Irish Times, Gilbert writes, I believe that our planet is inhabited not only by animals and plants and bacteria and viruses, but also by ideas. She goes on to say, ideas have no material body, but they do have consciousness and they most certainly have will. Ideas are driven by a single impulse, to be made manifest. And the only way an idea can be made manifest in our world is through collaboration with a human partner." End quote. These great works of art and music did begin with a human collaborator, but they only stand the test of time if they ultimately belong to something greater and can be picked up and reimagined by another human from another time that is at once present and eternal. We'll now leave you with Hark the Herald Angels Sing, sung by the choir of King's College, Cambridge, under the direction of Daniel Hyde, the present director of music. The descant is arranged by Philip Ledger. This recording is taken from the choir's latest album, 
in the bleak midwinter, which Colin says is fitting for these times. COVID was a very bleak midwinter and continues to be in many parts of the world. And I think that um, all of us who had gotten through 2020, by the time we got around to Christmas Eve, we were looking for that familiar sort of warm, comforting sound. And we got it, but we also heard sort of a different take on a lot of these carols. And it felt strangely appropriate to have that sort of slightly, that sense of off-putting or unfamiliar uh, nature to it. But at the same time, just like these descants have helped us hear hymns and carols in different ways, these new and fresh arrangements gave us an even newer and more unique way to hold a lens to these texts and to hear them in a very different way, especially after a really difficult year that we had all been through. For listening to Hark. Before you go, I've got one more piece of good news. My colleagues at America have written daily Advent reflections for our digital subscribers. To sign up, go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. And if you're enjoying Hark, we'd love for you to share it with a friend, a colleague, on social media, basically shout it from the welkin, or write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us grow the show. Hark is a production of America Media. This episode was written and produced by me and Ricardo Da Silva.
Sound engineering by Jim Bilodeau. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Frank Tucson. Production assistance from Kira Hanlon and Jim McDermott. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Special thanks to the choir of King's College Cambridge, the Ignatian Scola, and One Hope Project for allowing us to play parts of their recordings of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We'll include links to their work in the show notes. For America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn. Happy harmonizing. Next time on Hark? In the text, so we were singing it in Latin, because Catholics would never dream of singing that carol in English, because that's what the Protestants did. We'll hear about the Christmas carol that divided Catholics and Protestants and carried secret revolutionary messages.